Welcome to the program, The Spirituality of the Catholic Church, as Father Paul Keenan teaches on God and man in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And now, Father Paul Keenan. I'm Father Paul Keenan, Assistant Director of the Office of Communications for the Archdiocese of New York, and it is once again a great pleasure for me to be with you to talk together about the spirituality of the Catholic Church as it is experienced in the New Catechism. We were seeing the last time that uh, when we talk about liturgy, when we talk about the worship of the Church, we're talking about something broader than what we ordinarily think of. We ordinarily think of ourselves, uh, when we talk about worship, we, our ordinary experience is that of the Sunday Mass, but our worship is really something much broader than that in the church. It's uh, something that is meant to include our entire lives, our entire timeline in our lives. And the ways in which the sacraments are celebrated, they're part of the church's worship too, an integral part, uh, help us to map our lives a little bit so that we kind of uh, have a sense of where we are. And each major stage in our life is celebrated and offered and prayed about by the entire church through one of the sacraments. The sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist, the sacraments of healing, the anointing of the sick, and the um, sacrament of penance and reconciliation, and the sacraments which are called the sacraments in the service of community and communion. Those are the sacraments of matrimony and holy orders. They form a map for our lives. Remember I was saying when we were talking about the creed and even in the very early part of this second section of the New Catechism, I was saying that uh, we have our lives here kind of on the surface, the kind of things we might put on our appointment calendar or right on the refrigerator, the things that we, we do in the course of the day or the week. This is what my life is. But underneath all that, there's a whole other life going on, and that's God's life. And as we get older and wiser, we begin to see that these two things have to go together, that often enough, God opens up little doors in our nice routines and uh, just kind of yells yoo-hoo at us and reminds us that there is another whole life that is the one we're really meant for, the life of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that is within us. And uh, God is reminding us, hey, I have a plan here too. It's not all about going to all those meetings and doing all those things that you do. Those are great and wonderful, but please, please, there's another plan here at work too, and I need you to be concerned about it. Well, God does that, and the liturgy of the church, the sacraments of the church, really do serve as a reminder to us that down beneath all the hustle and bustle of our day, we find the presence of God. It just opens up a door for us, and that's what the sacraments do, especially when we look at them from that timeline perspective, the sacraments of initiation, the beginnings baptism, communion, confirmation, then the sacraments of healing for the times that we need healing, uh, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, and then those third kinds of times when we're ready in our life to give ourselves away, sacraments of orders and of matrimony. 
I also mentioned that there's a, a third take on the uh, liturgy of the church, which is not now by um, what we do each week, going to Mass on Sunday, and it's not now by the, the times across our entire map of life, our entire span of life, but it's in terms of our day. And uh, the hours of the day are marked by periods of special prayer within the church. And they, too, are part of our worship, part of our liturgy, what we call our liturgy. These are the things that we call the liturgy of the hours. The liturgy of the hours. The morning prayer, the prayer at midday, the vespers, the evening prayer, the night prayer, those are the things that really mark our hours, the passing of the day. And uh, the church has a set of prayers for each of those periods of the day to help us to remember that our day is passing. So, our liturgy is very, very much, our worship is very, very much bound up with time. The number of different levels, because the reminder is always that well, remember William Blake, you were meant, you were taught to believe a lie that you see not through but with the eye. With our eyes, we see the passage of time and all the things we have to do, and I've got to get this done and that done and the other thing done. But when we see through that notion of time and underneath it, we see that there's God's time as well. And you know, the interesting thing, this can come to us as we develop a sense of worship. The interesting thing is, that as we develop and give ourselves over to a sense of God's time, almost, well, it almost seems like magic or something, almost mysteriously, our sense of temporal time becomes better ordered, more peaceful, happier. Things seem to go better as we begin to let God's time in. So the whole pattern of worship in the church helps us to let God's time into our time opens up that little trap door underneath our time where God says, hey, I've got a plan here. I've got something more important than your time. Can we talk? And that really is what, in a sense, our liturgy is. In its treatment of our liturgy, the uh, catechism spends a considerable amount of time, as I would like to do with you now, to talk about what it calls the sacraments of initiation. These are baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. And they are called the sacraments of initiation because they lay the foundation, they lay the basis for everything else that happens in our life of faith. If you... Um, don't have these, you really don't have the basis and the foundation for the life of faith because they're the beginning. They are the beginning of our new life. We all know what baptism is. We, if we're Catholics, we're baptized ourselves, and while we may not remember our baptism, somebody does, and somebody may have a little remnant of our baptism, a little booty that we wore, or a bonnet that we wore, or a picture that was taken, or our baptismal certificate, or maybe one of our godparents is still with us and remembers the ceremony and talks about it. It was a pivotal and important moment in our lives, our baptism. and Maybe we did it as adults. Maybe we had our baptism as adults. 
And we uh, really came into Christ and accepted a conversion to Christ as adult people, people who had lived a life and, and then were willing to uh, to say yes to the call of Christ in their adult life. Well, we kind of know that baptism is a beginning. That's not much of a surprise to us. Uh, it, it really is. It's It's something new. Now, by this time, I hope it's not much of a surprise to you when I say to you that baptism is uh, not just something that got shot out of a cannon somewhere in New Testament times. Because remember, I've been telling you that God always prepares for everything, that nothing gets left to chance. Everything that is is something that God has prepared for for a very, very long time. Well, let me tell you, baptism is no exception to that. The Catechism reminds us that baptism is prefigured in a lot of different ways in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, one of which is in the waters of creation. Now, we get into touch with that in a couple of different ways when the Church prays about baptism. When at the baptism ceremony, the priest blesses the waters of the baptismal font, he remembers that, remembers how the waters of creation were first a part of God's plan for creation, and that God blessed the waters of creation and uh, made them an integral part of his creation. And out of that then came the, the creatures of the sea and the creatures of the land. So the waters were very, very important. They were there from the beginning, and they were very important part of creation. And that God blessed water all the way through. The um, We know the story of Noah's Ark. We know the story of how God was so exasperated with the condition of the human race that he used the uh, waters of the rain, the torrents, the torrential rains, to cause death and destruction, except to the little group of people who were faithful, the group of people and animals up there on on Noah's Ark. Now, in baptism, as we shall see, there is a dual sign. There is a sign of death and a sign of life. The water that can destroy us can also give us life. You see that if you spend any time near the ocean that uh, you know that uh, when it gets nasty, if you've ever lived or been near the ocean on a very, very nasty day when there's been either a strong breeze or a hurricane or even a tropical storm or something, those waters, which can be such a source of pleasure and of life to us, suddenly become a source of destruction. As people are drowned and houses are torn apart and there's all sorts of of, of death and evil and and destruction and uh in all of that we're we have that double reminder of what water can do water can heal and water can bless and water can give enjoyment and life and water can destroy well noah's ark is that same kind of story for us god was going to destroy the world through water but then god repented of that said i will never again promise or vow to destroy the earth and he didn't he kept good to Noah's promise, the promise that he made to Noah over the rainbow. That is, uh, again, a prefiguring of baptism, the life and death involved in water for us. And then there's the story of the Red Sea, Moses uh, leading the people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, 
and the Red Sea rolls back for Moses, and it uh, it rolls again to its original position for Pharaoh and his troops, and they are drowned, and Moses and his people go off safely. That dual element of uh, death and life in water, and the promise that for God's people, that life is the ultimate promise. He leads them past death and into life. There's a real death and resurrection motif there, foretelling, I think, of the death and resurrection of Christ, and also the death and resurrection element of baptism in the story of the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea. The Jordan River, the Catechism reminds us, is a place of prefigurement for the sacrament of baptism. When John the Baptist baptizes, uh, he baptizes a baptism of repentance. You repent of your sins, and you prepare the, the way for the coming of the Savior. That's what uh, John the Baptist was doing out there in the Jordan River, and immersing people and bringing them down into the river, symbolizing death, and bringing them up again to symbolize life. And that was certainly a preparation for the baptism of Jesus. And then there was Christ's own baptism. Jesus himself uh, wanted to have and uh, asked for almost over the Baptist's dead body, practically. The Baptist didn't want to do it. But Jesus said, let it be so for the time being, and, and he did. And, and he was baptized there by John the Baptist. And when he was, that voice came out from heaven. This is my son, proclaiming Jesus to be his son. And then his uh, his temptations and his public ministry were able to begin. So there is a great deal of prefigurement of what we celebrate in baptism in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. And uh, again, it's another example of how God has always, always prepared for the things that happen. Nothing is by accident. Everything is prepared. There are no coincidences here. It's not a coincidence that we have a sacrament of baptism. It's not an addition or an add-on. It's something that is intimately bound up with the life of God's people, with salvation history, if you want to use that expression, the ways in which God worked out his salvation in the concrete lives of his individual people. It's uh, it's not an accident. It's all a prefigurement. It's all a preparation. Again, reminding us of the importance of taking time in our own lives to prepare and to celebrate, to get quiet, to listen, to find out what is really, really going on in our lives. In the church, we celebrate the sacrament of baptism in a ceremony which involves, uh, first of all, a welcoming. Uh, if that has not already been done at a previous time, uh, it's done right on the day of baptism itself, where the either the infant or the adult person being baptized is welcomed into the church, and the sign of the cross is placed on his or her forehead by the priest and by the godparents, at least, and uh, by the parents in the case of a child. The idea behind that, again, is not to rush into a ceremony. The entire course of the person's life, in a way, uh, even for an infant, has been a welcoming. It's been a welcoming into the world in that case. And if the person you're baptizing is an adult, the en entire course of his or her life 
has been a kind of invitation from God. You probably remember the poem of Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days, and up vistaed hopes I sped, and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmid fears. The poet saying that all of his life he was trying to run away from God, like a, he would might run away from a, a bad dog, and uh, the dog nipping at his heels all the way and staying with him until he caught him. That's how God was for Francis Thompson all through his life. Well, in the life of any adult person who, who comes to God and who turns to God, God has always been nipping at his or her heels, trying to, trying to remind him that there's more to life than meets the eye. And so we greet that person. We, we take time to greet them and to acknowledge the fact that their life has been a preparation for, for the, their conversion to God, their real coming to God. And uh, we greet them with the sign of the cross because that's the sign that, uh, that really marks the Christian. And after that, there is uh, the listening to the Word of God. Again, uh, if we're going to initiate a person into the faith, into our faith, we have to have them hear significant parts of the Word of God. On Holy Saturday night, at the Easter Vigil, it's particularly poignant there because the Easter water is blessed and the um, candidates for baptism are presented. There is a whole host of readings which really cover the span of God's saving deeds among his people. The whole gamut, pretty much, those readings cover the many, many reading, readings of the Easter Vigil. And the... Um, person who is prepared for baptism uh, really hears the story of salvation, the story of how God throughout history has prepared his people, has attempted to save them from their sins, and has attempted to bring them and call them to yourself, to himself. That um, hymn from uh, Hosea, long have I waited for your coming home to me and living deeply our new life a paraphrase of the prophet Hosea and his words, God's words in him, actually, uh, reminds us of, of just what is going on here, that God is always, always preparing and reminding us that there is more going on than we are usually looking at. In the baptism ceremony, then, there is that celebration of the Word of God and a homily to comment on that followed by professions of faith and uh, statements, because you really need to be able to believe. You really need to be able to say you believe before you're, you're baptized. So that's the whole point of the thing, of, of the baptism ceremony, of, of expressing and, and celebrating a belief, and so you express that belief. And uh, then the ceremony uh, after that, the ceremony of baptism, itself takes place, the dying and the rising and the waters of baptism. Preceded by that, though, is a, a fairly lengthy prayer, which is also said at the Easter Vigil, uh, an even longer form, uh, in which the priest blesses the waters of the font and remembers what we have talked about just a few moments ago, how God has always used water as a sign of death and life, as a sign of the salvation that he holds out for us. 
And the child is baptized. He is anointed. Uh, he had already been anointed, he or she, with the oil of chrism earlier in the ceremony, and now is anointed uh, with um, I'm sorry, with the oil of the catechumen, now is anointed with the oil of chrism, and the anointing with oil, remember what anointing is from when we talked about I believe in Jesus Christ back a few weeks ago on this program. We said that anointing was love, because the anointing was the is always the pouring out of the Spirit, and uh, that Jesus' anointing as the Christ, as the anointed one of God, really meant that uh, the Spirit, the Spirit that went back and forth between His Heavenly Father was there and was just poured out all over Him. And that Spirit is what we call love. Remember, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in them. So in the baptism ceremony, the child is anointed, anointed with a reminder that God loves the child or the adult who is baptized very, very much. And... Then a baptismal candle is given, the light of Christ. A white cloth is given for the putting on of Christ. And together the prayer of the Our Father is said as a preparation for confirmation and communion, a preparation for entering into the words of Christ and the deeper reality of Christ. So the whole baptismal ceremony is geared to this celebration of a new beginning. And it's true also of the sacrament of confirmation, the sacrament that ordinarily the bishop comes to administer. Confirmation is a deepening of what has happened at baptism. It's a prophetic announcement of the Spirit. We have already seen in our treatment of the Spirit how throughout the Old Covenant, the Spirit was already there and already working in so many different ways through creation, through the promises of a Savior, through the law, through the prophets, so many different ways the Spirit was working in the Old Covenant and continued its, His work in the New Covenant through um, the presence of Jesus, through the time of Pentecost and the presence of the Church, right down to our own present day. Confirmation as a, an effective sign of the Spirit makes all of that present in the life of the person who is ready to say yes to it. And uh, that really is what it is. It's a remembering of Pentecost and a re-experiencing of Pentecost. Not just a remembering, but a re-experiencing as well. And it's done through a laying on of hands. Laying on of hands is an ancient, ancient way of praying in the church. You lay on hand, lay the hands on someone as a sign of your care and love for them and as a point of contact with the living God. And again, through anointing, through that outpouring of the Spirit who is the love of God. And just as baptism forgave us our sins, including especially original sin, made us new creatures, brought us into the body of Christ, gave us our sacramental bond of unity as Christians and an indelible spiritual mark, confirmation continues that process of grace by tying our roots more deeply to our Heavenly Father, uniting us more firmly to Christ, bringing out our gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, reminding us that we are gifted and that our lives are to be given in spending our gifts for the service of Christ in the world. It renders our bond with the church more perfect. It strengthens and spreads our faith and makes us ready to defend our faith. And again, 
There's a there's an indelible mark. We are indelibly and permanently marked as people of God, as brothers and sisters of Jesus, as members of the church. And the third sacrament, the Eucharist. Under the appearances of bread and wine, we receive the body and blood of Christ. Jesus told us, do this in memory of me, as he said to his disciples, and, and we are privileged to be able to share that, to share that movement of love and of grace in which Jesus Christ reminds us that we are his body. The sacrament of the Eucharist augments our union with Christ. It separates us from sin. It wipes away our venial sins, preserves us from future mortal sins. It makes the church, builds up the body of Christ as we receive it. After all, we are the body of Christ. It commits us to the life of grace. It gives us unity of Chris, of uh, uh, life within our Christian community. And the Eucharist, very especially and very importantly, is a pledge of the glory that is to come into our lives, a pledge of the glory to come. What an auspicious beginning this is for our life in Christ. This reminiscence of what God has always been doing in the life of his people, but more than a reminiscence, because a sacrament is an efficacious outward sign doing what it signifies. It actually does it in the individual believer and in the entire church when these sacraments are celebrated. So it's the beginning, the beginning of the faith life. Our belief as Catholics and as Christians is that God is with us all throughout our entire lives. And how fitting it is that our church chooses to celebrate the beginnings and our growth in the beginnings of life. Beginnings are hard. They're tough. They're difficult. I think we all know, especially if we're around young people, how tough it is for them to really grow in a life of faith, especially today, and how joyous it is when they do. Well, the church knows and God knows in his wonderful providence how difficult beginnings are. And he gives us three sacraments which enable us to celebrate beginnings, to confirm ourselves in the wonderful divine plan that he has for us, the wonderful place that he has in our lives and that we have in his, and to remind us that no matter how tough the beginnings, he is always there to be with us. Thank you for joining us today for the Spirituality of the Catholic Church with Father Paul Keenan. You may write to Father Keenan in care of the Office of Communications, Diocese of New York, 1011 First Avenue, New York, New York, 10022.